are you? Are you think I don't want to come out of this? Don't, don't let us come out of this place, you know, of freedom and joy. So I just pray this morning that as we share with you the same spirit that was upon Jesus to set the oppressed free will be upon us and amongst us. And that a spirit of wisdom and revelation would be poured out upon each one of us. So that you don't take information, you take revelation this morning from heaven. That touch of heaven that came upon us, Lord, when we were worshipping. That heaven's perspective. Heaven's revelation, heaven's truth be right here, right now. As we look into your word together this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. You will need a Bible for this little bit. If you haven't got a Bible with you, there's some on the shelves over there. Please feel free just to tiptoe over and grab a Bible. Oh, oh, is that? Oh, they're in that room. They're in the lasers, kids' room. Put it back afterwards and then Brian will be happy. Lovely. That first quote, Phil, do you think you could put that first quote up? I'm going to do a little, hopefully really short introduction to what we want to share this morning and then Debs is going to speak for about a quarter of an hour and then pass it back to me and then we'll follow whatever the Holy Spirit seems to be showing us to do as a result. So we want to share with you on the subject of grace, grace and empowerment. Do you know, when I first heard those two words put together, I thought, oh, to me, those didn't necessarily buffer up because I didn't have any revelation on that. Yeah, and now I can see that they are completely linked. And this is a, a, a saying that I think really captures, um, and captures the whole thing of what grace is. You know, people always like to do a definition, don't they? We've got all these acrostics and clever ways of remembering what it is. But basically it means that when Jesus made his great gift of love and sacrifice on the cross for us, he did a great exchange so that we get really everything that he deserves, honour and glory and power and sonship and freedom and equipping uh, and so on. And he got what I deserved and you deserved. And it's a total free gift and it's mind-blowing, isn't it? But let's just take a look for a moment about the era, the time in which we are now living from God's perspective. Okay? So if you imagine there was a timeline running from the far side wall over there up through the cross and then on into eternity that way, all right, we know that BC, before the cross, people lived in a different way of operating with God, didn't they, than we do this side of the cross. 
in the beginning, there was total relationship and total freedom, wasn't there, in the garden. But the bad news was, we listened to the father of lies rather than our true father. Lost it all. Became orphans. Sinners. And to contain the decay and the chaos, law came in, didn't it? So everything that side of the cross, there's rules. There's law and there's judgment for breaking those rules. Jesus breaks into this mess. And from that time on, he inaugurates a new era. The era in which we live. And this time is called the era of grace. The new covenant of grace. We've got the same division in our Bibles, haven't we? Old Testament, New Testament, or New Covenant. New way of operating. A covenant is an agreement, a way of going on together. And we're in the new covenant of grace right now. So many of us Christians and many churches understand grace to this level. It's by grace we're saved through faith. So everybody is saved by grace. Great, we understand grace, we think. It's a free gift. We don't have to earn it. You can be saved. That's one thing. That point of salvation. All right? Received by grace. But what I've noticed we're not so great on is living in grace and giving grace and walking in a complete grace environment creating an environment of grace amongst ourselves that other people can enter into we want to be saved by grace but we want everybody else to keep the rules Otherwise, we're going to judge them because they blooming sinned and that was wrong. And they deserve everything that's coming to them. You know? Can you see that disconnect? And so what I'm praying that will happen amongst us this morning in an increasing measure is that we would begin to understand the great repercussions of this gift of grace. And how lovely it is to live in an environment of grace and create an environment of grace for other people to enjoy. I said it would be a short introduction, so I'd better accelerate. Um, So, what does this grace do for us? What does it do for us? Number one, it gets us saved from death. But it does more than that, doesn't it? What else does this grace do for us? Let's have a few ideas. <sighs> Double gold star. But what does that look like? That's what we're going to work out. Wendy said it empowers us. It takes us from simple orphans who've lost all our power and authority and it reinstates us as sons of the king equipped with glory and power and authority and freedom and so the list goes on. Okay. 
So Wendy so beautifully said it empowers us, or another way you could say it is it enables us. When God gives us grace, he enables us to do something. He gives us what it takes to walk into that. And if we look really briefly at a couple of examples of um, how Jesus did this with people, you might want to just note these scriptures down, and then later after Debs has shared, we'll look a bit more de- in detail at some examples, just in case you're thinking maybe she's just making that up. So in the Gospel of John, let's look at an example of how Jesus empowered somebody. John chapter 8, starting at verse 3, down to verse 11. This is the famous story of the Pharisees dragging the woman caught in adultery up to Jesus, throwing her at his feet and saying, The word of God says, Moses has taught us, she should be stoned. And they were doing this public testing of him because they wanted to try and trap him as being somebody who would not honour the word of God. Okay? This poor woman, can you imagine this? Could you just make a little film of this in your head for a moment? Could you just forget all the talks you've heard on this up till now and just get real and think about a public place. There he is, religious teachers, people of status in the society, dragging a woman caught in adultery. I mean, what she must have looked like, who knows, in shame and throwing her at his feet and saying, okay, what do you say? Her heart must have been pounding, her head bowed in shame. No opportunity for her to speak, only him. And terrible, wasn't it? There's just shame written all over it, isn't there? And in this amazing story, we realise that Jesus is operating out of a different culture than they are because what he does is most annoying in the middle of all that mayhem he will not be drawn into that mayhem he bends down and draws in the sand with his finger oh how annoying we want him to get angry (laughs) and he just is waiting, isn't he? I don't know what he's waiting for. I wonder if he's waiting for revelation from heaven. But anyway, he's definitely not joining in. And they kept on questioning and he straightens up, make that picture in your head, and he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. So he's fulfilling the law. Right? But he's saying, who of you is worthy to carry out 
the fulfillment of the law. It all goes a bit quiet in the house. <laughs> at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. This is interesting, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. So now we've got this amazing encounter with a person who in that culture is like the lowest of the low now. I mean, being a woman already puts you second class, but a woman of ill repute way down there. And let's see how he treats her. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she looks, finally dares to look, and says, No one, sir. What words is she expecting to come out of his mouth? If we Christians were to write it, we might have given her a, a little bit of advice. He restrains from that. Don't you think that's amazing? It's what's not said there that speaks volumes. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That grace, those words, I personally believe, contained enough power in it that she was able to do that. Just one taste of the grace of this culture of grace that Jesus operated in is enough to set people free from habitual sin. I think that's absolutely incredible. There's another marvellous example in Matthew 19 of how um, Matthew 19 Jesus demonstrates what grace looks like. Matthew 19, verse 14. Matthew 19, actually start at verse 13, two verses, 13 and 14. So there Jesus is out in the crowds again. And we find little children were brought to Jesus to place his hands on them and pray for them. People wanted their children to receive a blessing from him or maybe healing for them or something. But the disciples, the grown-up men, rebuked those who brought the children. Jesus is far too important to be dealing with these kids. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Implied in there is that they'll want to. Let them come to me and do not hinder them. 
for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. That's amazing honor he bestows upon kids. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. I mean, that's quite a public rebuke, isn't it? And again, it shows a totally different culture because in their culture, men first, women and children second, lower class. Okay? And he turned that upside down, right to the disciples' faces and said, actually, the kingdom belongs to such as these. And don't you dare get in their way. That's what the culture of grace, the kingdom of grace will do. It will empower children to come to him. It will empower children to receive the kingdom. It will empower women to uh, occupy an honorable status. It will empower those who seem to have blown it through committing the sorts of sins that we think are worse than others and reinstate them with honour. Speak a word that will totally give them power to live in a beautiful way from that point on. So, nearly finished now. Oh, there's another quote. Can you put that one up, Phil? A grace-filled ministry will empower every person to thrive, irrespective of age, gender, race, or socio-economic status. Great quote, isn't it? But what are the evidences of a grace culture? Let's look how far we've taken what's happened at the cross and put it in practice in our own environments. Okay? We understand we're saved by grace, but are we doing what comes from that in terms of setting an environment where others can enjoy grace. So what are the evidences of a culture, actually I have a nice big question mark at the end, of grace and empowerment in our ministries? So, I'm actually asking you a question now. What evidence would you look for when you go into your setting in your home, in your church, other ministries, places of work, whatever, what would show, what would it look like if there's a grace culture operating there? Anybody got any ideas? There would be love and joy and unity. Good. Yeah, lack of criticism and judgment. So that's all a feeling. All the things you've said are, are like feelings. What would it actually look like? What would look different? For whom? Beverly, you've got it. What, kids? What, leaders have fallen? What, divorced people? What, women? What, people of other countries and cultures? Hey? No. 
Come on. Aren't you going a bit too far there? That's what it looks like. That's what the evidence is. How we treat women, children, the disabled, those who have fallen, those who come to us currently living in sexual immorality, outcasts, how we treat them displays the extent to which we're living in a grace culture and giving it away. That's the evidence. We can talk about all the lovely invisible feelings, but actually what provision is made, what freedom is given, what care, to the extent to which they're enabled to do things is the measure, is the evidence. And I'm not standing here and saying we've got there because we haven't. We're on a journey. But that's what we've got to, from time to time, take a good hard look at our situation and say, what does the evidence suggest? And act accordingly. Okay, so one minute and then it's you. The way we see people, that's the last quote. The way we see people. Have you got that one, love? The way we see people determines how we treat them. And, I mean, thank God for Paul telling that story over lunch on Monday about his down syndrome son Peter because that totally encapsulates it and I know others have referred back to it but I feel like that's a key story for our week I'll repeat it again Ian wasn't there Paul Wakeley has five kids um, two of which are disabled one of them Peter has Down syndrome he's an adult with Down syndrome and Paul took him on mission with him to the Philippines he sometimes takes him with him when he travels and he noticed the last couple of weeks when he was there um, that his son was doing really well in that environment. He'd actually left his son for a weekend while he'd gone off doing Paul Wakeley things and came back, asked how Peter had been doing and discovered that in the Filipino environment there, his son had spoke spoken at a meeting for 35 minutes with sequential teaching it blew Paul's mind and then he didn't say this when he repeated the story on Monday night this is what got Paul's heart, got his attention he then said to his dad I want to live here hey when people taste a great environment they want to live in it why would you want to go back out of that because in the great environment where in that culture they didn't see his Down syndrome they didn't see him as a Down syndrome disabled person they could just see that in him there was a whole spirit that you could draw from the gifting of the spirit that's within him and somehow that enabled him to do something there that he can't do here because we see him different. That really blew my mind. That's
proving the theory of what we're talking about here. So, I want to live in a graceful environment. I'm going to hand over to Debs now to take us a step further with this. Wow. How do you follow that, though? Uh, as I was preparing, which has been a bit hit and miss over this week, between preparing vegetables, carrots in particular, <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking, how on earth am I qualified to get up here and talk? I'm not. And then, but then, just as Heather was speaking, I felt the Lord say to me, 1 Peter 1.17, and remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favourites. Yay! So actually, I can stand up here, because I'm one of his favourites, just like the rest of us. Okay, um... For those of you who don't know me, my name's Debs. I'm married to the wonderful Tim, who I think is out in the kitchen preparing your lunch. And, yeah, peeling carrots, probably. Uh, We have two sons. Uh, One is 22 and the other is 19. Part of the reason I wonder why, and I question whether I'm qualified to stand up here, is because both of my boys are not walking with the Lord. One is. One, yeah, he loves Jesus, but it's like, no way, I'm going into church. You know, he's at it with church. No way. I know he loves the Lord, and I know the Lord's got his hand on him. So I'm trusting that he's on that bungee, and at one point he is going to be hauled back up. Now, when my boys were growing up, uh, it wasn't in this church when they were younger, when they were little. Um, in their formative years, we were in another church, and one day, we, oh, well, one week, we had we had a we had a prayer week, and um, Dave Chip Chase, who was running the prayer week, wise man, invited Heather and Bex to come and do a workshop with the kids. Yeah, do you remember that? Well, up until that time, I thought, you know. Kids are just as important as adults. I've always had, I've always known in my knower that actually kids can do what adults can do. I just didn't know how, you know, because they were children. But that session, I think it was a Saturday morning. It was only a couple of hours, but I saw the kids in that fellowship be empowered. They... It just I was in awe of Bex and Heather in the things that they were saying and getting the kids to do and the kids' response. It didn't matter whether they were four, they were receiving and they were prophesying over each other. Now you've got to you've got to remember at that time in that church, children were seen as a nuisance and there was a very loud sigh after family time when the children left because the adults then thought 
Now we can get into worship. Now we can receive. It was the culture. And I'm afraid, I think in a lot of churches it still is. Now have we got it right here? No. As Heather said, we are on a journey. But, but we're getting there. We do have more of an understanding. But it's got, to, it's got to come down from the leadership all the way down through the parents, through the grandparents, through the aunties and uncles, brothers and sisters, through people who don't have children or have no relationship with children around them. Everybody has got to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Everybody has to have the same heart. And as Heather said, women, everybody is empowered by God. Everybody, it doesn't matter your age, your race, your colour. We are all empowered. Now, I'm probably going to ruffle a few feathers here, but honestly, in church, how do you view the children coming to the church? Are they a nuisance? I said before, is there a loud sigh that goes out when they go out to groups? Or I wonder if maybe you're in a church where you've got people queuing up to join the children's ministry. No? Why not? Why not? Why haven't we got people queuing up to join the children's ministry. They see things in black and white. They haven't got baggage. Do you know what? I learn more from the kids than they do from me. How many churches do you have, how many people in church do you have queuing up in front of kids to be prayed for? No? Have you got children on your prayer ministry team? Mm. On Sunday, we had um, uh, a gentleman was he's having tests for for an illness that they haven't quite diagnosed yet, and he was in a bit of a bad way. And uh, somebody just happened to bring him into the children's area. Well, fortunately, they were wearing tags to allow them in, <laughs> but they came into the children's area and. And one guy was praying for the other one, and I went over and started praying. I thought, hang on a minute. There's got to be a reason why he was brought into the kids' area. Okay? So I didn't take him to the oldest group. I thought, no. I'm not going to take him. I took him into the lasers group, which is our sort of reception to year fours. And Mandy was in there. And... Uh, she was actually telling a story and she had the kids and they had like paper fish and fishing rods. I went, well, water, well, hmm, have I brought them into the healing well? So I just thought, I, I don't need to be here because I'm not going to be the one doing the praying. So I just went, Mandy, here you go. Okay, and I just left him there with the kids. Now, I wasn't there, so I don't know what they were praying. I don't know whether they were actually laying on hands, whether they were speaking out prayers, whether they were, oh, she's nodding, so yes, they were. Yeah. Or they could have been silent. 
But what I do know is that the person who walked in was not the person who walked out. The person who went in could hardly walk. But the person who walked out was actually walking and smiling and feeling an awful lot better. So isn't that amazing? Yeah? So, okay, so who is now going to have kids on their healing ministry team? Yes, I think we all should, shouldn't we? Yeah, and prophecy. You know, we've, Mandy quite often does um, prophetic ministry, uh, painting with the kids, prophetic art. This one was actually done by a lad who isn't a Christian at Connect. But that is so powerful to me because we were looking at, we were thinking about the next Connect when they were doing it. And there's this little person with this huge thought bubble in multicolours. And that's our next step. Stop thinking in black and white. Think bigger. So, Randy. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need to be prepared, do we? We don't need to, it's nice to soak. It's nice to get, you know, to take time with the Lord. I'm not saying don't do that. But what I am saying is the Lord is ready and waiting as soon as we turn our face to him. He is there, and that's no different with the child than it is with an adult. Okay. So, we're going to equip our kids. Heather mentioned about what we see. Yeah? Okay. Do we see kids as God sees them? You know, God isn't leaving them hanging. I think uh, you mentioned something about hanging, didn't you, Brian, on Monday? And it sort of like stuck. And I found this picture. Next one. (laughs) You know, and I thought, do you know what? We do that, don't we? Isn't that how a lot of a lot of adults? Oh, isn't that how a lot of adults would like to see the kids in our church? You know, sometimes Tim and I are like um, we're like door guards, aren't we? You know, corralling kids in, stopping them running out. And you know, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful just to hang them on the line? And then we could enter into ministry. You know, we could enter into the worship and that, but. You know, God doesn't leave them there hanging. Why should we? The time for the kids to use their God-given gifts is now. Yeah? As Heather said, how we see people determines how we treat them. Okay? We don't want to treat them like this. And I make no apology for what I'm about to say next because... You know, everybody's heard this from me a gazillion times over. But Holy Spirit, you ready? Is the same age in a newborn baby 
as he is in the oldest person alive on this earth, he believes. Now you go, oh no, come on Debs, how can, how can Holy Spirit be in a baby? You know, they've got no reasoning, they're, they're just, they just think about the next feed, or if they're dirty, do they need their nappy changed, you know, or give us a cuddle. But if women amongst us who have been pregnant and have had a baby grown inside us, we know, don't we, that they respond. Yeah? They respond. They respond to our voice. They respond to, they respond to touch even when you rub your belly. They respond to that too. You know, our kids are crying out to be fed. Next one, Phil, please. Yeah? <laughs> Do you know what? That's what our children are doing. They're saying, come on, I want to get in. Feed me. Feed me, feed me. They don't want to be babysat anymore. Now, in Psalm 8, now we're back in the Old Covenant now, aren't we? We're back in before Jesus. But there it's Psalm 8, 2 says, You have taught the children and infants to tell of your strength and silence the enemy and all who oppose you. Mm. You have taught children and infants. Ah, so he has taught babies. They do know. They are filled with the Spirit. Yeah? Okay, because if he says he's taught babies to silence the enemy, then we've got to sit, sit up and listen, haven't we? Can we have the next one, sir? Is that what we're doing to our children? Are we feeding them the scraps? They don't need babysitting. They deserve more. Yeah? They don't want the message dumbed down. You tell a child the truth and they believe the truth. They don't have the baggage in the grey areas. They are already equipped. Psalm 8.2 tells us that. They are equipped. Our job is to encourage them. Don't stifle them. Don't keep them hanging. If we hold back, what we're doing is we're setting them up for a lifetime of relearning and ministry. Yeah? I've heard a lot today, uh, over this past few days, about people being released. Okay, I'm fed up with that. Sorry, I am. I want to see a generation that doesn't need ministry, that doesn't need healing, that doesn't need to be told that Dad loves them, because they already know it. It's in them. They've got no question. No question at all. What we need to do is to encourage them. Can you show the next one, Phil? That's what they're saying. They're fed up with being entertained. 
they want the real thing. So let's start giving it to them. Okay. Now, you, you quoted Heather from, from Matthew. Well, I was looking at it in Mark. Okay. What happens when the same things mentioned more than once in the Bible? Take notice. Take notice. It's said more than once that we should not stop the children coming to, to Jesus. He got really cross. In Mark 9 and 10, there are three, well, three times. There's probably more than three times. But we see that Jesus put importance on children. In chapter 9, verse 36, he says, it says, He put a child among them. Okay? He didn't take the children out and say, right, you go and do your, you go and have your own teaching. You, you know, separation. He took a child and put them in the middle of the adults. That should be telling us something straight away, just by that little sentence. That he took a child in his arms. He didn't hold him by the hand. He didn't hold him at arm's length. He took him in his arms. He said, anybody who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. Yeah. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. Every time you welcome a child, you are welcome Jesus and Daddy as well. Then in verse 42, haha, there's always a but, isn't there? But, if you cause one of these little ones who trust me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Ooh. Now a lot of us say, well, we didn't, you know, we haven't caused a child to sin. How have we done that? By causing separation is a sin. Yeah? That is a sin. Sin is separation from God. It's being disobedient to God's will. If God says, bring the children to me, and we're going, oh, you know, it's time for you to go, that's a sin in itself. What about chapter 10, verse 14? When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry. That's the same as in, in Matthew. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Welcome. Encourage. Phil, can I have the next one? Is it going to be scary? Yes, it is. It is blinking scary. Scary for us adults as well as the kids. Seth Dahl um, at Bethel, he's got this one, and he opens, um, he opens some of his talks like this. He says, we don't know what we're doing. We haven't got it all sorted. But what we do do what our heart is, is to get kids drunk and, treat, and teach them to play with fire. 
He wants to get kids drunk and teach them to play with fire. Now, in the world, we'd be calling Tim in as child protection officer and saying, uh, they've got it wrong here. But actually, isn't that, isn't that what we've all come here for? To get drunk? Yeah? To play with fire? Why is it any different for our kids? Can anyone answer that? Why is it different? Should it be different? Because absolutely, absolutely, and fear is false evidence appearing real. Yeah, get rid of the fear and invite the kids in. Yeah, and I I was thinking about that that story that was told on Monday as well uh, with Paul. Um, that boy almost changed overnight, didn't he? Because he, he said he was only gone for three days and the difference when he came back was absolutely incredible. Uh, he grew in stature, didn't he? You can almost see it in my mind. I was just seeing this lad, you know, knowing some Down syndrome um, people. You know, I could see him in my mind's eye sort of almost growing six inches and his shoulders coming back and there was like a... You could almost hear it in the story, this boldness. Yeah, that's what we want in our kids, isn't it? He was wise. He had wisdom. He was more articulate. And he was changed because the people around him saw Holy Spirit in him. Holy Spirit not being disabled in any way at all. He, Holy Spirit didn't have reduced understanding or ability in him. And he won't in a child. Uh, Phil reminded us yesterday that Jesus broke the curse that was holding us back from the kingdom. We have free access, don't we? We have free access. That's not over 18s. That's everybody. And do you remember he said that it was our minds that limit us? We take the teachings for ourselves quite easily. But are we willing to change our mindset about children and youth? If our history, which is how we were brought up and how we were taught, dictates what we think, shouldn't we be grounding our kids in the kingdom culture from the very beginning? As I said before, you know, a baby in the womb will respond to touch, to words. So, if you know anybody who's pregnant, start, start laying hands on that, that bump. Start prophesying over that child. You know, start declaring great things in that child and it will happen. They will do what Jesus did and far more. We start enabling them now. And if we do that, then all the ministries that we have now, healing ministries, deliverance ministries, all these ministries, they will just become outreaches. There won't be any need in the church because all our kids are sorted. They'll grow up. They won't need debt counselling because they know their God provides all their needs. They won't need healing because God is their healer. There'll be a complete generation free from baggage. Have the next one, Phil. 
Are they going to make mistakes? Yes. Because we all make mistakes, don't we? But if, we, if they've grown up and we've created that culture of honour where they know that they're safe and loved, they take ownership of their own mistakes and they desire to protect other people's hearts, we can love them through their mistakes and we will raise up mighty men and women of God who just want more. Our ceiling of experience will be their floor. Yeah? Our ceiling will be their floor. Where we stop, that's where we'll start. And we will celebrate with them. I think so often in the past we see things and we go, ooh, there's a little bit of jealousy that creeps in. But we will celebrate with them and they will fly. Can we have the next one, Phil, please? That's scary, isn't it? But we want... We want, and God wants, a generation who have no fear. He wants us all to have no fear. But wouldn't it be awesome if we, our kids had no fear? Yes. So how do we do that? We do that by including them in our healing teams. We invite them to lay hands on the sick. We create throne room experiences and tell them that they can do anything and everything. Um, we have a group for um, young children, sort of like reception to year, sort of like eights, called Kingdom Kids. And we, we're, our aim is to show them, not to teach them, to show them who dad is. Um, and last time, we, we just asked them to soak. Can you, can you go to the next one, Phil, please? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> we, take them, we take them into a room that we, we, we've, got, we've got all gold fabric and we've got a throne and we've got white fabric on the floor and blue so it looks like a river from the throne and it looks like all clouds and, and they take their shoes off to go into that room because they understand that they are going into God's presence. Now I know God's presence is everywhere but to go into this place is special for them. And they, take, they go in there and they go in with an expectation that God is going to speak to them. So last time we said to them, right, ask God what name he would give you. Okay. So they came up with some names and, and, and some of them it was, you know, it was, it was like weird names. Like a girl said, Stephen. It's like, what? But when you look up the meaning, I can't remember now, it's gone. But when you look up the name Stephen... It actually fitted completely with who she is, the meaning of the, the name Stephen. And then we said, right, okay, so that's what you felt God say. Now, I had a, a bag of, of key rings with, with other names on, things like Nation Shaker, priest, Peace Bringer, all these sort of things. I said, right, now pull one out. And do you know, every single child pulled out a key ring that matched the name that they felt God had given them. I mean, that is just, that blows your mind, doesn't it? So, so they go, actually, yes, I know 
that God gave me that name. Even a girl called Stephen. I mean, how weird is that? They know that God is speaking to them. And that gives them confidence then to go out and to prophesy over others. So we give them that we need to give them space to be creative in that. We can do that through art. We can do that through creating a throne room experience. We can do that at the ho- in the home at night time. Okay, they won't necessarily communicate in the same articulate manner as adults do, but there will be no frills and they'll be straight from the heart. So be prepared, okay? Because they don't mince words. How about inviting them to go on an angel hunt? Hmm, I've done that in church sometimes and we've done it in the youth hut. Uh, One day Mandy was reading a story in the youth hut and I felt this sort of like blast of wind come past me and thought, yeah, okay, it's an old drafty hut. But then one of the boys went, there's an angel over there. It's like, yes. I felt it. He saw it. How awesome is that? And Seth Dahl's done that. And he, and, and he said to them, okay, you've seen an angel. Go and ask him what he wants. Why is he here? And they do. Because they don't know any different. You know? They don't think, oh, no. An angel's a messenger from God. What does God want to say? They can bring words of knowledge. People can be healed. Okay, so, right. Next one, please, Phil. Nearly at the end, sorry. Um, Darren Clark, who used to lead the kids' work in um, Toronto, um, he's got a family, and, you know, people used to come up to them and say, oh, what does your dad think about that? You know, quite often they're asking, well, what, what does your dad think about that? And do you know what their first reaction would be? Which dad? Not that they've been adopted, well they have, into God's family, but not because that they are adopted in the natural sense, because they are so in tune with Father God, with Daddy God, that they know what he thinks about things, because they're in communion with him all the time. And that's what we want them to be, isn't it? Walking with Dad, so that when you ask them, what does your dad think, their first response is, which dad? Okay, so let's go back to Psalm 8. God has already taught our children and babies to tell us of his strength and to show them how to silence the enemy and all who who oppose him. Our job is to encourage them to fly. Yes. And to dive right in. They are ready to go the distance. Yep. If we let them and encourage them. It's not rocket science. He's already taught them. We just point them back to Dad. If we do that, we'll find less of this going on in our churches and families. Okay? Thank you. I love those pictures and the, the phrases you've put with them. I can feel in the room that people have nearly had enough <laughs> for today. So I'm just going to, that's fine, going to run through with a few questions that you could perhaps look in more depth later for yourself. Okay. Um, 
That was so wonderful. Because I want us to get to a point where we can pray together in a minute. Um, if you, you know, as, as you've picked up, Debs is passionate about seeing children empowered. And I am becoming passionate about seeing women empowered. And so if some of the things that I've said or will be saying in a minute stir up questions and you think, oh, I want to really look in the scriptures a bit more about that, there are some notes there which might take you into greater depth to give you the foundation of the ideas I'm sowing. So please help yourself to those. Okay, so where we are now in this timeline of, of history, in this point of an era of grace is a very interesting point in history as far as the history of the church is concerned. You might have heard on the news yesterday that the, in the Anglican Church they're about to fast track the decision as to whether women can be appointed as a bishop. Last year or the year before, an astounding thing happened in that they decided uh, it would be okay to ordain a, a gay man to be a bishop, but they weren't ready to face ordaining women as a bishop. Uh, put you, guys, put yourself in the shoes of the women at that point. How that made women in leadership feel. Um, but they're about to fast track that now, which is a very interesting stage. So... When I say that, you know, I, I realise in the room there could be very many different views about the role of women in church. We all like the idea of, in theory of empowerment, but what if we actually put it into practice to its fullest extent? Would that make some of us feel very uncomfortable? And so I want to ask the question is, where do our ideas our beliefs about the role of women in church actually come from? Give me some answers. Where have you formed your ideas from? The way we've been taught in church or the way they've interpreted the word. Yeah. So from church culture. What else? From scripture, yeah, from scripture, absolutely. What we've seen modelled out. Anything else? Where have we got our idea about our beliefs about the role of women in church? Because everybody will be in a different place with this and I want to question where we've formed our idea up till now. Where, where those ideas have come from, from scripture, from church culture, from what we've seen modelled out. Yeah. 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 From the society and the culture of our society, definitely. Yes, our interpretation of it, and in some cases, 
actually just what we prefer because we can find a verse to back up what we prefer. So if we are a woman who would prefer to be in the background in a submissive role, uh, quietly getting on, we can find a scripture to confirm that. And if we're a woman who wants to step up and exercise giftings and control, we can find verses to to do that too. And the same with men. Okay? So, what Nikki said about church culture is really very, very important because I think actually for those who've been Christians for quite a long time, that has been the biggest influence. The trouble is, church culture and kingdom culture as demonstrated by Jesus do not necessarily match up. And where we get a contention between church culture, our own personal preference, our upbringing, the the way things happened in our home, and kingdom culture, which culture has got to get preeminence? Kingdom culture must went through. We must obey God rather than men. We see it in sharp focus when we go to Uganda. We see it in blurry focus here. There are still aspects of life in the church where prejudice causes us to operate in certain ways. Um, So, What I want to challenge you to do is to dig more in scripture to find what kingdom culture is as demonstrated by Jesus and line up your beliefs, my beliefs and the way we treat people in line with that rather than all the other things that have contributed to our beliefs up till now, good and bad. What culture did Jesus come into, break into when he came onto the earth? What culture was he living in? Jewish culture. Describe that to me. Male-dominated. Legalistic. Women weren't educated. They were second-class possessions, actually. Yeah, that was what he came into. Did he join in with it? The first scripture we looked at showed how he refused to join in with that. And I've got some other scriptures that you might like to look at. Okay. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Can't argue against that. And I'm, I'm, I'm very glad. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we can't get away from that, but understand the culture he was brought into and the things that he was starting to confront. But you're thinking the right way, Bonnie. What culture did he come into? Yes, into this one that we've just described. What did Jesus come to do? The captives free. Introduce a culture of the kingdom and redeem everything that was lost 
way back in the garden. Where in the garden, male and female, he made them in his image. He made them. The man and the woman together make the full image of God. He made Adam. Out of his side, he made woman. So the complete picture is male and female. I I, I I haven't got the time to go into all of that now. I'm just sowing ideas in there. Please look into it. He came to redeem everything that was lost so that together, male and female, together we can begin to represent the image of God again on the earth. How did Jesus empower women then? He didn't call them to be his disciples. But how did he empower women? I'll, I'll quickly give you four texts, okay, that you can look up. Hmm? Yes. Um, you can look at how he treated Martha and Mary in Luke 10 and in John 11. You can look at how he treated the Samaritan woman in John 4. You can look at how he treated the crippled woman in Luke 13. And you can look at how he treated the sinful woman in Luke 7. And if you can bear with me five minutes, can I unpack something from that? Really, I wanted to give you the text and you just read them and tell me the answers. Because you know, you'll know those answers if you look. But the Samaritan woman, the story is he's on a long journey. They're hungry. He sits down at a well in an area... Samaria, so that's not kosher. And they go off, the disciples, to get food, and he's just resting by the well. And this Samaritan woman, so number one, she's a woman, he's not supposed to talk to her. And number two, she's Samaritan. He's breaking all the rules. And he talks to her. And number three, She's had all these husbands and the man that she's with now is not her husband. I mean, if there's anybody disqualified, she is. Who does he have the most deep conversation and gives the most profound revelation on worship in the whole of the New Testament to? The Father is seeking Worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Darn it! Not one of the disciples. A disqualified, foreign, immoral woman. I've just gone all goosebumpy. I hope you feel it too. Because it's revolutionary, this grace thing. And she gets it. She gets that grace straight away and dashes off to the town and is the most wonderful evangelist and brings everybody and says, come and hear. And he stays with them, I think, two days after that because of her testimony. The sinful woman. So there, Jesus is invited to a meal. He likes meals. 
he goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. So, man of status, man of status. He goes there for a meal and all the important people are in the room having this meal and then there's this elephant in the room, which is the woman who'd had a sinful life, whatever that means. The woman who'd had a sinful life is in the room too and has the audacity to go and stand near him where he's reclining for this lovely meal and stands there and weeps and makes a blooming spectacle of herself, weeping. They're all thinking attention-seeking behaviour. They are all thinking... There's all sorts of questions arise why she can get into his house. But we're making assumptions. We're making assumptions. But she is there in the room. And she weeps in his presence and washes his feet that had gone unwashed by the important men in the room. And Jesus addresses the elephant in the room scenario and says, you know, I've got a question for you, Simon. You know, who's going to love most? He who's been forgiven much or he's been forgiven little? And they kind of get their heads around and go, I guess the one that's forgiven much. And then he draws attention to her and says, Simon, do you see this woman? See her? Of course we see her. What do they see? They see her sin. They see her disqualification. They see her shame. They see her audacity. He's not talking about that, is he? Do you see? See her. Do you remember what I said about the way we see people will determine how we treat them? He saw past everything that everybody knew about her externally and saw something beautiful inside. And he said, You didn't, when I came in this room, you didn't kiss my feet and wash my feet, but she's washed my feet with her hair, with her tears and dried it with her hair. And the offering of love that she brought, he received. And he honours her and says, your faith has saved you. She's totally on it. Do you think she carried on in the same way? Because grace enables. And... I know I'm coming right up to time now, but I love that story so much. I just I could tell it again and again because the picture of it is the theology, Bonnie. That is the theology. He is the Word made flesh. And what he does is the message. Oh.
so those around him, those disciples who became the apostles, they then have to make this journey, this radical journey. We should have sympathy with them because they are steeped in the culture that they were born into. We can't expect them to think any other way than women are second class, women are not worth educating, uh, religion, faith is for men. The synagogue tells you that. It's only men in the environment. The women are behind bars, separated. Worship is for men. The words, the knowledge and everything is for men. That's the culture they're totally born into. So the poor guys, they're having their world rocked by this man. And they have to make this enormous journey. So when we read the scriptures and all the verses that Paul writes, and we're making up our minds about what we think about women in the church and so on. Remember, Paul is in a journey of revelation which actually starts way over here because he's a Pharisee, highly trained and steeped in rules and regulations and hierarchy. And Jesus breaks in, gets hold of his life. He doesn't even have the privilege that the other apostles had of actually walking with him for three years and seeing the way he treated women. Paul has to get it by revelation. And what he is writing is a journey of revelation. He is trying to teach the churches who are facing the challenge of working out what grace is actually going to look like in our culture now. So they're starting with women being silent and sitting separately, not being educated and not being allowed to teach or do anything. Because they, they, they had no education. How are they going to teach if they can't read? Do you see what I mean? Okay? They're on a journey. They're on a journey. And he writes a whole spectrum of things about women in the church, from be silent and have your head covered and not allowed to teach. You can't get away from it. He wrote it to what, in my humble opinion, is the pinnacle of revelation, where you go, yes, he's got it, which is in Galatians 3, verse 28. Who knows it? And now, in Christ, there is now no Jew nor Greek, major culture shock, slave nor free, major culture shock, male nor female, but we are all one, we're all sons of God. So when you read the scripture, please don't pick the bit that confirms the bit you want to say. Realize there's a journey of revelation. And what are we looking for? The highest point of revelation. Take that and put it with what Jesus actually did, who's perfect revelation, and we'll start to get the right kind of picture. So where are we now? I think, sadly, that the church remains the last bastion of prejudice against women. 
When we were fighting the battle against slavery, thank goodness many Christians actually led the way, but there were Christians too using scripture, because you can use scripture, there's New Testament scripture, to justify slavery. But now there's no right-thinking Christian, right-thinking Christian, who could possibly entertain the idea that it would be right to own a slave. But sadly in the church, for two reasons, one is good and one's not so good, we still have a struggle in really releasing women. The good reason is the men who hold the power currently really want to honour scripture and see the scriptures there and would find it very difficult to overstep in their minds the mark across the line that they see in some of those letters. Okay, that's a good reason. The bad reason is that the ones holding the power are afraid of sharing the power. You know, there's good reasons and there's bad reasons, and I'm not going to point the finger at any of that. That's a tricky position to be in. But where we are now in the church, Ephesians 5 verse 25 is where I think we would sum it up. Ephesians 5. You've been so tolerant with this long talk. Ephesians 5:25. This is my last verse. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. You know, Christ is the head of the church, and the head of woman is man, and so on. Let's look at Christ's headship. What does it look like? He is the head, and, and men are the head. The husbands are the heads of the wives, and so on within the church. But what type of headship is it? What type of headship is it? We're not saying they're not head. We're saying, what type of headship is it? Loves, gives himself up for her. And Jesus says to the church, greater works than these will you do. It's a headship that does not limit or contain what that bride could possibly do. It's a headship that says, Go, girl. You can do it. And greater things will you do. That gives me tingles too. That's the kind of headship Jesus has for the church. And male leadership is invited to have towards females. That I probably haven't really said that completely. I could be a lot more careful about that. I'm throwing the idea out. Okay. Please look into it and explore it. So that now in today's culture, we're in a situation now where the Holy Spirit is coming upon women. In the last days, my spirit, so my spirit on, all flesh, men and women, young and old. And guys are being faced with the challenge of 
seeing the Spirit come upon women, women becoming pregnant with the purposes of God, just as Mary became pregnant with the baby Jesus, and having the challenge to be to her as Joseph was to Mary. Because at first, Joseph's brain was scrambled with all the rules that were broken by Mary being pregnant <laughs> from the culture that he was in. But God broke in and gave him revelation and he listened to that revelation and went right against his culture to take care of, nurture, protect and release her to bring to birth what she was supposed to do. And that's where we are. That picture language is where we are in the church now. Where God's looking for the Josephs in the leadership levels of the body of Christ who will recognize where the Holy Spirit has brought about the potential of some revelation and inviting men to lead in the way Jesus heads up the church in the honouring, releasing way, secure in who they are because sharing power doesn't make them less. It makes the picture come back into focus. Men and women together presenting the balanced image of God through the church to the world. So women, we're not to be power grabbers. There's no women's lib movement going on here. We are to wait for men to choose graciously to share the authority and the power they've inherited and to only step into it by invitation. So, can you just put the mic here for a bit because different things that Debs has said different things that I may have said different things the Holy Spirit showed you through the morning may cause you to want to pray something in particular and I want to give you the freedom to do that for a moment so could we have a time of prayer together to respond to whatever the Holy Spirit's been showing you come and, come and grab the mic Lord, I just want to say that a big sorry for the way we've treated children and, and probably women too, Lord, but particularly the children, Lord, for the way we've um, looked at them with eyes which aren't really godly or gracious. And I pray that you'll forgive us, Lord, that we haven't always seen them as important sometimes we want to put them aside and and just keep them quiet and not allow them to be themselves and haven't seen the treasure inside them 
and the beauty that's in their lives and the power of the Holy Spirit in them, which is just the same as in us. And that power of the Holy Spirit is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Lord, I, I just already said that um, it's been like this in your church and I just love kids. I'm just so sorry that um, we haven't treated them with respect and with honour and that, Lord, sometimes we look at them as a nuisance or a burden when actually they're a great blessing to us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help each one of us, whether we're involved with kids' work or not, to begin to relate more to our kids. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to draw treasure out of them even in the everyday conversations and, and the way we relate to them. Help us not to pass them by, but help us to encourage them and to just will them and win them so that they reach their purpose and their destiny. And we pray for every child that comes to every church that's represented here, that, Lord, we will see them reach their destiny and their will glorify you, Lord, and that they will be as Jesus to their peers in this day and age. Lord, we bless every child. We bless them and we thank you for them. They are a gift to us. Help us to treat them wisely. Help us to love them as you love them, Lord. Help us to see them in new eyes and to listen to their hearts with new ears and give us hearts to really understand them in a way that perhaps we haven't seen or understood before. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Father, I just want to lift any grandparents um, here today. And I ask in Jesus' name that any grandparents you have contact with their grandchildren would remember all this stuff about kids that they would uh, deliberately remember and um, and bring these things help to bring these things out of their grandchildren yeah. that uh, maybe have a, a talk about angels or do a bit of soaking or any, whatever whatever you drop in, drop things into their minds as, an, as a suggestion especially me, especially me with mine, <laughs> but everybody else as well. <laughs> but uh, if you could do this for grandparents, Lord, it would be so, so wonderful. So I do really, I pray this earnestly for us all. Thank you, Lord. Amen. just thinking of that picture of the bird with the snare again and um, remembering the dream that Chris was talking about last night about how he'd been lying in bed and had felt like there was a battle going on and that it would sort of be alright to fight or not to fight but you could just tolerate it and let it happen and and but then this kind of fire coming of this like no enough is enough we've tolerated this we've let this carry on for too long I won't stand for it anymore and father just I want to say sorry for the times that we've got so used to having a snare that we've tolerated it we've even like made it like a badge of pride or we've taught it or 
we've made the way that we limit ourselves and limit each other something even to be proud of. And I'm so sorry. And enough is enough. We don't want anyone to be limited in our family. Whether it's women, whether it's children, whether it's people who've made mistakes, whether it's people who are different than us, whether it's people with learning difficulties, whether whatever it is, we're really sorry that we've made neat boxes to try and fit everyone in and keep them in there. And we just say sorry. And it's time to break out of that. Amen. I'm in a session with that Brownie leads, and um, we will never, in whatever level of leadership it is, as a mum and dad or a grandpa, we will never ever follow somebody very long for their giftings, but their Christ-like character. And if a woman is prepared to love me so much that she's prepared to lay her life down for me and a man doesn't express his love that way, I will follow the leadership of that woman. It's a delight to be in your group, Bryony, because we're not following you for your giftings, even though that's important. We're following you for your Christ-like character. I've got that wrong before. Thank God he's patient with me. So Father, I ask you to forgive me for the times I've allowed myself to be puffed up and thought myself to be better than this person and that person. This woman in leadership. So Lord, I lay that down at the foot of the cross and let it go. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being so good to us. Now is the time for this change to take place. This year is the time for the church in the UK to enter a fresh revelation and a fresh way of operating together. Why do I feel convinced about that? Because of this extraordinary set of prophetic circumstances that happened in January. Before Christmas, someone came to my house and they were, they were a little nervous and a bit embarrassed about this, but they gave me a gift. This is a rather strange gift they gave me. They said, I feel God's told me to give you that gift. When the time comes, you'll know what it means. 
on earth, is it? But I know enough to just put it to one side and wait. And I, I realised it's one of those things they put over birds of prey, they put over their head. In the new year, we went to spend a couple of days with some of the leaders in the southwest, and we were praying and having a great time together and listening to what the Lord is saying. And then it got to the very last day, the very last sort of session, the last hour. And all of a sudden, Andrew Badley from Shaftesbury said, I'm just going to say it, he said like he'd been trying to contain something. I'm just going to say it. He said, I feel like we've been, there's been a hood and wing clips on us. We haven't been able to fully see and we've been limited. We've been contained. People have been not able to see properly and, and have had wing clips on that have contained them. And I don't know really what it means, but you know, I'm just going to say it. And then Sue Jackson from Shaftesbury said, I've seen a picture. I've just seen a picture and it's of um, a falcon. It's a falcon. Well, one of those birds of prey. But I don't know what it is. It's a picture of a falcon, at which point I go all tingly because none of them know about this at all. I mean, why would you tell anybody about sort of weird as that but um, I suddenly thought I know what this is about all of a sudden I can see it and so I told them about this gift and that this when the falconer wants to set the bird free to fly to do what it's meant to do which is hunt prey they pull this off and they keep it over them all the rest of the time to tame them, make them manageable. And um, so we suddenly realise this is the Kairos time. This is the Kairos time for us to suddenly see the women, the children, the disempowered people as we really should see them and stop trying to manage them and let them fly, get those wing clips off them and let them fly to do what they're meant to do. Um, I was so proud of my Phil because he was really brave in this moment. And, you know, there's powerful men in this room. And he said, I think we should invite all the women to stand in the middle and we men are going to bless you set you free so we're taking the limits off what you can do oh it was wonderful it was wonderful and it was so Holy Spirit orchestrated because we could have had arguments theological arguments about this till the cows come home but nobody could argue that the Holy Spirit gave each person the peace and it all came together. That's why I believe it's the Kairos time. So shall we stand and say, make an agreement that it's time for the hood and the wing clips to come off those that have 
been managed and contained and need to be set free. And if you've been feeling like you've been in an environment where you've been contained, unlimited and not free because of prejudices about something or other, your past, your gender or whatever it is. Now, now's your moment. Now's your moment. So, Holy Spirit, please come. Holy Spirit, please come right now. Come and do what only you can do, Lord. Come and do it. For each one of us, it's a different thing. Come and do it right now. Make a declaration in the name of Jesus that the hood comes off right now that you see, you see, and the wing clips are released. You could fly, but you couldn't fly freely. It, it stopped the full flight of what you're supposed to be and do. And in the name of Jesus, I declare freedom, freedom, freedom right now, freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Make that declaration of yourself. Right now, the hood and the wing clips come off because that's who you've got authority over, yourself. I will see like you want me to see. And I will fly and do what I meant to do. Can you make that declaration? I will see like you want me to see and I will fly like you want me to fly. No more limitations of church culture, national culture, family culture, religious culture right now. For now, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, in the name of Jesus. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's good.